Hey, Dame. Yo. Do you happen to have any idea who this episode is brought to you by? Oh, I think I have a clue. I think I know. <laughs> this episode of Ergo is brought to you by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. And if you know Ergo, we love independent and we love shit not being locked down. So <laughs> so go ahead and get Overcast for free on the App Store. Hello. Hey there. This is Ergo. We are that. <laughs> Whatever that is, we are it. Uh, what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. I am Kiss. I am Damon. And this is a fun one, one that we've been talking about doing for a long, long time and are so excited to share with you our conversation with someone who quite literally changed both of our lives in ways that are almost too numerable to count. Keisha Scott is here. As you'll hear over the course of our conversation, a dear and, and important mentor to us, a levitator, uh, <laughs> Keisha Scott is, you know, as I say, a Forrest Gump of radical movement space. And so to be able to document the story of this Black woman freedom fighter that in our education and in our development um, helps steer and guide our path to learn a little bit about her path and her story. But also she showed up prepared. She showed up with notes. <laughs> she brought the notes she and the list. She was ready to, 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 to get it in. She got right into her bag and also helped us build some, some really great definitions of this, this big concept of mentorship we're talking about. So you said get into it a little bit. This is way more than a little bit. In fact, it's so much that we broke it up into two episodes. So this week we're going to bring you part one of our conversation with Keisho. Uh, and then next week, you'll get the second half. Both pieces are super robust. The first one kind of establishes more of that theory and the ideas and how she understands it. And the second half is a little bit more personal about our experience with her. But both, I think, invaluable contributions to this conversation we've been having over the last few weeks. Dame, anything else you want to add before we hop in? Just It's, it's really an honor and privilege to document and platform Keisho's story and, and life and humanity and uh, impact to, to the world and to our audience. So for folks that have been, you know, deep listeners to Ergo or maybe even folks that have engaged me in a lot of movement space through Let Us Breathe or otherwise, you may have heard this story of this Black woman ex-Panther from Detroit uh, that really guided and shaped a lot of the theory and grounding of the work that we do. Uh, and so it's really an honor to be able to introduce Keisho, the person, to our community and to, to move her out of mythology and reference. And one of the things that was really exciting about this conversation uh, about mentorship is she was directly mentored by many great thinkers and workers and builders of liberation and freedom, uh, but particularly Jimmy and Grace Lee Boggs, who we ground our show in and ground a lot of our organizing work in that tradition. So it was very exciting to hear her story about how she was shaped by them, similar to the ways that she helped shape us. And so it really is an honor and sense of pride to even be in a place and to have grown this show, uh, to be able to hold and capture uh, all that she has contributed, not only to our lives, but you know, 
to move in space globally. Uh, and so I, I'm just just really excited for y'all to be able to hear this and to be able to learn from her and the ways that we were so fortunate to be able to do for, for many years. Absolutely. Fortunate is definitely the word. All right. Let's get into our conversation. This is part one of our two-part convo as part of the mentorship suite with Keisho Scott. Let's get in. Levitate, 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 levitate. Today feels like a long time coming in many ways. So excited to have on the show Keisho Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am honored. I am so honored to be here. Let me just start out by saying that and and actually a little nervous. I wouldn't say intimidated, but a little nervous because I want to I want to please the two of you. I love you very much. So let's see how it goes. We love you back. <laughs> All right. You nothing to be nervous about. You, you you have so much in the bank. And an appropriate amount of nerves, I think, spread amongst the three of us. Yep, okay. Yep. <laughs> so why don't we start with the uh, same two-part question that we start all of our conversations with, which is in this time, however you define time, this hour, this moment, this season, this lifetime, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? What a question. I believe that the world is a big classroom, if you will. I'm going to go to some of my sort of spiritual terms. And that world is to teach me the lessons that I'm supposed to learn at this time in this life. Now, that doesn't mean I'm into whoopie dooby dooby dooby. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real issues. For example, that I was, say, born in the 50s, raised in the 60s, and I became an, uh, a parent in the 70s and 80s. So in that context, I was born at a time in which my country and the world was fighting against imperialism. America was racially segregated in the 50s. I came of age in the 60s, and I am now a, a grandma at 68 years old fighting against worldwide global anti-Black racism. So those things inform how the world is treating me. How then am I responding to those things is what I'm talking about in terms of spiritual terms and in terms of trying to define what I think it means that the world is, is teaching me. It's giving me an opportunity to practice what I know and what and challenge what I value. All right, team. I got to just stop us right here. I love you so much, Keisho. <laughs> okay. So last week we had Shannon Benjamin on and I started getting emotional right away. <laughs> like, right <laughs> out the gate. I bet. It's the waterworks. And I just want to say, I'm putting a stop to it. I'm going to laugh. I'm going to enjoy you. But just know that like, even just hearing your voice starting to just frame and answer that question just like brings me back to such like an important part of my own development. So in addition to the big ass questions we're going to be asking you this whole time, just like get prepared for like the love and praise and appreciation and the gas that we're going to be heaping upon you because Keisha Scott, you are, you are an important figure in this world and in our lives. And so I'm just, just trying to shake off the cobwebs, but you're not going to make me cry. Or at least not for 30 minutes. Uh, I'm going to go to first 30 minutes with no tears. <laughs> okay. That's, that's All right. my intention. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I might I might start crying too. And I also have a register in my body that says, cut the bullshit, Keisha. Go back and answer that again. <laughs> you know, and I got that part and I feel safe enough to do all that, do that with you all because answers are complex. So mm -hmm. thank you. Yeah. If there's one thing that you taught me, of the many, many things, it's that answers are complex and that there has to be room to not 
work toward forming a conclusion, but to work toward having a deeper understanding of the thing you're trying to understand. And I know that that's super, super vague for all of our listeners, but I think it's something that if that's your approach, both academically, you know, as a thinker and a scholar, and then also in terms of relationships, uh, that's something that for someone who is very project and goal and achievement oriented, there's nothing that's been more helpful in my life than being reminded and being shown that this isn't about having an answer. This is about having a deeper understanding. Um, so let's start with that, if not definition, at least understanding for you. You know, we, we've heard from a bunch of folks about some of the complicated emotional response, even to the word mentor um, or, or discomfort with it. Uh, and some folks, it's something that they really, you know, carry as a badge. How do you feel about that term? And if you have a sense, what does that word mean for you? In this moment, 30 years into a diversity, equity, and inclusion movement, that word has become buttered up <laughs> in a way that I really don't like. When institutions finally admitted that they had been exclusionary, whether it was an academic or corporate or mainstream church, when they began to stop being in resistance to the fact that they had historically and institutionally excluded people, then it became powerful to say, we want to mentor. We want to mentor the people that are in and help them reach their potential. But by this time, it, it became very slick and it became institutionalized work. It became paid work. And I don't come from that tradition. I come from a tradition that mentoring meant that somebody was going to ca carry my butt along in the movement so I wouldn't make some mistakes that would impact the group. Nobody used words like that, right? They, they said, get over here, do this. What do you think? Give feedback. And then we collectively did the work. I would say that that's element of mentoring because it does involve uh, sharing advice and helping people do something that they don't have the experience and expertise to do. So I think it's an organic and a natural thing. But the way that we have institutionalized it has become very sticky, tricky, and fucked up. Excuse me. Now I am going to curse. And uh, <laughs> for, for our listeners at home, we got a very strong internal disclaimer that there would be no cussing, which we were fine either way with. But but I'm I didn't believe. <laughs> I realize I realize that I you know I had to connect fucked up with institutionalized because. You know, it really has bastardized something that is, I think, is very sacred. It is clearly Keisha Scott had mentors. Some of those people picked me. Some of those people I picked. I wanted to be influenced by them. And some of those people inherently picked me and said, I can give this young woman something. And I'm grateful for that. But the way that we think of it now, I'm not comfortable with. So I think that if I had to give some sort of definition, it clearly is to help and advise somebody who does not have the experience that you have and the expertise you have because you've been in the game a long time. That's what I think of it as. And I do not think that all teaching is mentoring, although I think an aspect of teaching can be mentoring. But I, I, I don't think the two are, abs are, are an absolute. That, that's, that's right on point. One of our big arcs was this tension between the institutional co-optation and the more communal, indigenous, traditional practice of developing and nurturing people and building lineages. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm really excited because one of the things 
you've taught us is that words are important and that we always have like the power to create and find new language for things. Absolutely. So when we started doing this suite, the word mentorship, we felt exactly what you were saying. And even you broke it down deeper of connecting it to this neoliberal response to, to movement, right? And instead of equity or repair or reparation, right? We're, we're just going to mentor the elite to be able to survive in our institutions. And if they don't, well, you know, sink or swim. Uh, and so coming from that, like, bastardization, it feels like we need a new word for this thing that we're trying to describe. And if you have any imagination or any, like, throwouts of where we can start just to brainstorm what we should call this practice and tradition now that it has been co-opted, I would Ooh. love to think about that with you. Well, you know what? I, I In the body of the things that I want to unfold and put into this, I have something. I just don't want to say it at this point because I want to oh, lay okay. out some more <laughs> developmental ideas. You're building the suspense. I love it. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, I have something else. And I think we'll also have something together. But one of the things I know about the two of you is that you are damn good listeners. Some aspect of this is being open to something that we reimagine together. But, but it is clear that we're ringing the bells that what has happened to an organic process it's been co-opted. So I want to go back to this notion of mentorship being a role, because one dimension I know now in this moment of racial reckoning is that a lot of people think they're being mentors because they run their mouth and because they work with young <laughs> people and they forget that they don't that they don't have a responsibility. So one of the qualities of mentoring is a sense of responsibility. Now, you know, from my mentor, that it was responsibility for and responsibility to, right? This is what Grace Lee Boggs taught me and Jimmy Boggs taught me. What am I having a responsibility to? And so for me, ultimately, my responsibility is to what side of humanity I'm going to be on. And I'm in advanced capitalist country in this historical moment of global capitalism. What side of humanity am I going to be on? So any mentoring that I see myself doing, it is clear in my mind is that I'm being responsible to the lessons of humanity. What we know is this fact. Human beings have been about the business of being more human, and that has changed over a long period of time, right? So I can measure my actions and other people can measure their actions against that model, right? Whether that's doing a piece of the anti-racism work or if that's loving your children or if that's stopping for somebody who just fell in the street. Can my actions be measured up against something? There clearly were times when people weren't as human and practice humanity as they are attempting today. So I want to believe to be a mentor requires that somebody clearly see that I am taking responsibility for something. And that that's very powerful. That's very sacred to me. Yeah. I'm only at the 12-minute mark. I know, me quarter. too. I was about to I say... Got, <laughs> I got 18 minutes left before I'm letting it flow. But I have... Uh, yeah. I was going to say, Damon, I didn't commit to this 30-minute mark <laughs> okay. and I'm over here teared up. And the reason why I'm teared up and I want to just take a step out of the, the kind of what this is about and more to what this is, I was just so quickly reminded of the feeling that I've had so many times in conversation with you, um, which is this kind of immense swelling of, uh, it's not optimism, it's commitment and understanding of what this is. And that's something that we've seen in a lot of these conversations is 
someone who serves that role of a mentor, someone who will tell you what it is. And as uh, our, for our co-curator said, they'll tell you what it is, but they'll also tell you what it is. Uh, yes. Like both sides of that. And, and the emotional response, I think it just brought me back to a place of like the excitement and the nervousness of like understanding where we are and what this is. And then we can figure out where to move. I can't necessarily, I shouldn't have even tried to explain no, what I'm I was here. feeling. I'm Go here. for I'm it, David. I was I'm just feeling it. Well, let me you're, say You're going to have to see us as puddles throughout this conversation. Uh, no, no. Well, let me say this. The thing that we fight back against, the pushback, is that capitalist society has appropriated mentorship as being about profession and career without taking any responsibility if that career or profession is going to hurt others. And that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about mentorship that has to do with activism, mentorship that has to do with life choices, mentorship that has to do with the commitment to unlearned isms, the mentorship that has to do with healing, because we got intergenerational healing we've never done, the mentorship that has to do with spirituality, and I'm not talking about religion, and the mentorship that has to do with leadership and love. When somebody says, I want to be mentored, we now have to actually ask them, for what? <laughs> That makes the complexity of this much more in our face and probably much more scary. And I would also add that if you're not ready to levitate when you have a mentor, then you're not ready to be a mentee. You want their knowledge. You want it without having to pay the price. You want it to put it in your storage so you can pull it up and say, you know this, but it doesn't mean shit because you haven't paid a price for any of that. And that's abuse. That's intellectual abuse, right? Mm. Can we unpack that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. What do you mean by this concept of levitation or of uh, paying the price to gain that knowledge? I love it. See, I know you all listen so damn well. So <laughs> levitate means that when each of us are put in a situation where somebody exposes the contradictions of our, our basic assumptions, and when they do that, they pull the rug out from underneath your feet and you have to levitate because you got to actually look at what you think and how you feel about what you think that all of a sudden you look down and your groundedness is not there. You aren't grounded in what you thought is the gospel because you said it, right? <laughs> because what you say ain't the gospel. When you're in relation with somebody who you're a mentor, you better expect them to help you levitate so that you can take a look at yourself so you don't be making some mistakes that you don't really want to make. We're being generic here. Let me tell you, mentorship in my mind is about me, say for an example, consulting someone, somebody asking questions and I do the fill in what that experience has been for me. But it's also about being a counselor. That is helping somebody go from this emotional place. God damn it, Keisha, I'm scared to do that to get to this place because all fear is facts appearing available and they're not really true, right? So they're false, any of our fears that we have because they didn't happen yet. But also mentoring is about being a cheerleader. And I think that's what you all have enjoyed me in your life. Do it, do it, do it. We got to have <laughs> cheerleaders. We got to have somebody saying yeah. do it because clearly if you're going to be doing something you never did before, you got to go from having courage, which means you're going to be scared doing it, to bravery where you're not scared at all doing it, right? So you got to have a cheerleader to that. So in my mind, transferring you know, knowledge to somebody involves 
knowing that you're going to be doing that. That's why mentoring has a beginning and an end. You don't have somebody mentor you all your life, right? It has stages in my in my mind. So I'm going to this stop is rem- there. It's remarkable that you've just hit all of the themes. In- <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, I'm glad we're getting the, the nuts and bolts and the theory out of the way so that then we can just do the other stuff. But one, one of the things that's really become clear is this idea of how do you enter, exist, and then exit from these relationships? And the expectation of this continued level of intensity or commitment uh, can have really detrimental effects where both for the the mentee, there's an expectation there of the same amount of giving. And then also for the the mentor, it sometimes can be interwoven in this idea of like their self-worth is wound up in the accomplishments of this person that they're that they're giving into. And that doesn't mean you can't be proud for someone or stay connected to them. And you know, we've we've remained connected in a lot of ways, but it's very clear to me that like where that need and commitment was at its most acute has not continued in that same way, uh, you know, over the last seven years. So yeah, can you talk a little bit more about how you think about this both entering and exit piece of the relationship? Absolutely. I'm wow, I love that to be asked that because two key of my mentors are gone on to the next part of life and existence out there. They're, in other words, they're not alive, but every single thing that they taught me, those experiences are very much imprinted. So I think I want to make a distinction between somebody being your teacher and somebody being your mentor. Mentorship does involve some teaching, but it's something a little bit different. I think teachers it's really about acquiring knowledge from someone. It's formal. It can be uh, informal. It doesn't have to be in a classroom. It could be outside of a classroom. But teacher is someone else's edited curriculum. Make no mistake about it. Whether it's intentional to make you be a jerk or to make you be a, a victorious person in the world is just about what you enter into with that person that's a teacher with you. We expect say at the college that I teach at, young people are going to come and get the best curriculum and that curriculum is going to help them go change the world. Those are some assumptions, but make no mistake about it. They're also intentional to a certain ideology about liberal education, whether that wants to make you a revolutionary or not. That's a whole different thing. That's the beauty of having a relationship with a teacher. I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying it has a limited performance. Whereas I think of a mentor is more of a guidance relationship. You enter into it because you humbly know that you don't humbly know shit. <laughs> and you really, you really want to hear what they're saying and watch what they do. You're lucky when you can have that kind of mentoring. And it helps people face what I think is their internal and external contradictions. Let me give you a concrete example. I remember the day that I met Grace Lee Boggs. I was 19 years old. I was waiting to go in to see my advisor at Wayne State University. She came in for some other purpose to probably meet somebody else to talk about something. And we were sitting there and our eyes met and she said, hello. And I said, hello. And she said, what do you do here? And I said, well, I'm a student. And then she said, and what are you learning? And I, I said, oh, shit, I'm going to tell this woman what I'm learning. You know? <laughs> Did you know who she was? Oh, hell no. And I proceeded, you know, she's a little short Asian woman. She looked, oh, I figured she mm-hmm. don't know as much as I do. I'm 19. And so I proceed to tell her. And after about five minutes, you know what she said? She said, stop. And I was mm-hmm. surprised. And she said, 
and how is any of that that you're learning helping you liberate humanity? And I was frozen. (laughs) I mean, frozen. And I am extremely, I was articulate certainly then, and I'm even more now, but I remember levitating right out of that chair in exactly the way I'm talking to you now, because she, in inviting me into mentorship, she was helping me face my internal and external contradictions, the facts about myself at this moment. And I proceeded in a smart way to say, uh, what do you mean? And then she talked for five minutes and then I got it because my heart was beating another kind of beat. I realized that she knew something that I inherently wanted to know. And I think that's why mentorship is different. You are attracted to something that you can't see. There is an element of faith that goes to it. And by the way, the religious people aren't the only goddamn people who control faith, just like they're not the only people who know what apple pie is, you know, and cultural icons. These things belong to many people. But I'm telling you, there is a kind of a beating that happens when you know somebody, you want to enter into relationship with them and you got to get humble to do that. You know, that's that early stage one preparedness. You got a big blank space (laughs) inside of you, with you, in between you. I think the second thing is negotiating. That is, what is that time going to look like that that person is affording you that you ain't paying for? Do you know they're giving you for the grace of their life and that is costing them something? What is that stage? I used to go to Grace's house and she used to make egg drop soup and talk about the politics of the world. And I knew damn well she was doing more things than one, washing clothes, cooking and talking to me. And I was washing the dishes and I was in a graced moment. I was getting something from her that was unique to me and her. So that was negotiating. I gave her my time. I showed up. We finished soup. We ate it. I left. That was negotiated between her and I. And then I think I had to show up. This is the hardest part. I had to show that she was not enabling me to fail. She was enabling me to grow. So by the time I saw her the next time, I had to share with her what I had grown from what she had taught me. When somebody gives you something, you're accountable, right? You don't just take it or you're a pig. You're greedy and you take things that don't belong to you. So I learned to be accountable. By the way, this is why I've had no problems knowing that you all were going to leave Grinnell and do your thing. And you all have kept in contact with me telling me what that thing is. Therefore, I know that this has been a successful relationship because number four, relationships close. Those sacred spots, what you negotiated closes because you got to go out there and do it. So I think the closure is equally important because it meets the goals and you can levitate on your own. And I think that's what's beautiful to me. That's what my mentor gave me, whether they were Mrs. Summers in the fourth grade and Mr. Summers, or whether it was my uh, teacher in junior high school, or whether it was my neighbor or my parents or my auntie or uncles, or all those radicals that I met in the, in the leftist radical groups. They had a place in my life and we had these intersecting moments. And I had to also not hold on to them as if I could control them and that I was dependent on them because I had to learn to fly on my own. 
if I was going to accept that gift of their levitating me. And I did learn to fly on my own. And I know you all know how to. That makes me feel good. Mm. Levitation. Levitate, 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 levitate. This notion of the process of reconciling heightened internal and external contradictions to be in a new space or to exist in a new plane or to have a new relationship to humanity. Yes. Uh, so I'm at 27 over here, just to let you know, Kiss. So, so from this point on, we can basically start to let them flow. <laughs> <laughs> because, th- and we're joking about this, but part of, of, of why I think we're saying that is in this conversation, there is a, a feeling of like coming home. I have felt levitated by you, the show, the organizing work that we do. There's this notion of like that conversation that you had with Grace and then that relationship very explicitly feeling like you served that role or continued that tradition in my life and our life and so many of our peers and, and classmates' life. That narrative has been like the grounding of the legacy and the lineage that we see this work in. And so in many ways, I feel like I just tell your bio, but I feel like I've, I've begun to mythologize you on this show in space <laughs> over years. <laughs> uh, and so it's just really exciting to get some of those nuggets of not just what you think and what you do in praxis, but the who you are. Um, because who you are in your classroom, in the relationships that you have is so much more than just a curriculum or even an approach through theory, it is this provocation to being more human. And so I want to go deeper into, into, you know, we got the first of, of how y'all met, but what more did you learn as you got deeper in relationship with Grace Lee and Jimmy Boggs? And how did you see your levitation coming into practice? Because I ask it not just for narrative, but because that legacy, I'm telling you directly, has shaped and propelled revolutionary movement in my space, even if you're not like getting the updates on a, on a weekly basis. <laughs> I did not early on appreciate my interactions with Grace and Jimmy and others to the extent that I've had a chance to reflect now. You know, I'm older. I'm, I've had my own experiences. I, like I said, I did my own levitating. But I can say this now very clearly, and I'm sure you all have are having this these flashback moments too. At the time, I didn't know that it was equally as important for Grace to be able to have someone to share what her world was about as it was for me to hear it. And mm. I would parallel that with, I would have left Grinnell College a long time ago if I did not get it from you all very quickly as students that you needed to hear what I had to offer, because I sure did not feel as if the institution really was interested in that. I know they wanted to check the box of having Black faculty, but I'm not sure they wanted to hear what an ex-Black Panther, somebody who spent 10 years of her life in an underground organization that wanted to overthrow capitalism. I know they were not interested in that because they didn't <laughs> ask me those questions when they interviewed me for the job. So, so they found that out later. Right. They found that out later and said, oh, my God, what the fuck have we done here? Yeah, that seems like a tense meeting in right. the uh, administration's <laughs> office. I guess this is before Google, so you can't right. look someone it was, up. It, that, it was definitely before. And you didn't put it on your resume. Oh, absolutely not. And I, now I put it in their face every goddamn moment I get. I say, you know, hey, you hired a bl- ex-Black Panther. So like, hey, that meant that your educational system was at least attempting to be honest 
because now you have multiple perspectives. <laughs> so they're never going to be able to erase that, whether they intentionally hired me or not. Certainly, you know, as a person of color, as an oppressed minority, that you got to be twice as qualified to do any damn thing. So I knew I had my white education and I had my people of color's education and both of them come with me. I don't leave them at home. They go with me and I code switch back and forth depending upon what my goals are. So when I think of Grace and I think of Jimmy, I think of Angela Davis, I think of Stokely Carmichael, I think of Walter Rodney. When I think of those people that my life intersected with, I realized that they had equally as much of a need like I do now to share what I have and I know with other young people. And it blows my mind that you want to hear it and that you I can almost see your minds click, click, clicking because it's being filed somewhere for when you will need it. So some of the other nuggets I learned in the private space that I shared with some of these people is how incredibly brave they were and how incredibly patient they were to all my zillions of questions. Why? How? You know, all of those kind of things. But also they were extraordinary listeners for the things I said and for the things I didn't say. And y'all know about that. The things that sometimes you want to ask, but you're a little scared to ask because it might reflect on where you're at. I, I think I remember that as one of their outstanding qualities. You know, if nothing else, Grace and Jimmy and Angela and some of these people, uh, Audrey Lord taught me the power and the responsibility I had to become a good communicator. If I was going to be out there changing this world, I better be able to communicate my ideas. And I, I wasn't a good communicator in the beginning. I had to become that. So they set the, the pathway for me to want to acquire some of those skills, to show courage in difficult situations, um, to show an eagerness in looking at the possibilities. And now I want to go to my words. Can I go to my, my four words that I think let's important? Get to some words. Okay, let's get to these words. Cause I think this should this should scare the shit out of you. But if you don't get this, you you can even say, I wasn't mentored well. <laughs> or you can also say, when I start this mentoring with others, I'm gonna make sure that I can do these. One of those words that Jimmy Boggs taught me is that I gotta learn to live with paradoxes. Paradoxes are two sides of a situation, whether it's a proposal or whether it's a some kind of proposition or whether it's an outcome where you live with something that cannot be resolved. You live with something that cannot be resolved. And in doing so, you are responsible for those two things existing simultaneously. Let me let me tell you, I don't like at all racism and democracy living simultaneously in Keisha Scott. And I want to fight racism and I want to make democracy do something more. And yet those things are in me. So you have to learn to live with paradoxes because that is part of the human experience. I don't give a shit what you learn about society and political systems and econ in economies. There are just things in the human experience like life and death, love and no love. So instead of thinking that there's some ultimate perfection and, and that perfection of not feeling negative feelings is the goal. Learn to live with paradoxes. I love being in the movement, but I also have to learn with times where the movement creates great despair in me and breaks my heart. Watching 
on television the trial of a man who put his knee on another human being's neck till he died. I don't want to be watching that. And yet, whether there is justice or not, I have to live with the paradoxes and the outcome of both of those things for all that it will impact. Second word, contradictions. And that comes out of the Marxist tradition that within the body of any kind of notion and idea, there are the cornerstones of its solution. So you got to live with the primary. You learn this in Social Movements 101. There's a primary contradiction, the one that's in your freaking face, and the secondary contradiction, the one that is not clear yet, but you will have to make a choice around. And in many ways, I think that movements are better served when we realize what is the primary contradiction and what is the secondary. Let me give an example. When I was in college, we accused the university of not teaching anything that has to do with people of color and and black studies of any kind. And they weren't. They had no teachers, no classrooms, blah, 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 blah. And we said, you know, fix that. Our education is not complete until you fix that. And yet we knew as the primary contradiction that they fixed, they got black studies, that the secondary contradiction was there. And that is whose knowledge for what power? That was the secondary contradiction, right? So even when they created black studies, we still had to deal with issues of what is the purpose of schooling? What is the purpose of education? Can you institutionalize everything that people become educated around? And how is education and schooling related to the lessons of humanity? So I constantly push people to figure out what is their primary and secondary contradiction living in this historical moment of racial reckoning, pandemic, fighting against um, global anti-Black racism and all the other forms that it's taken around the world in the context of advanced global capitalism, one world system. Like, shit, who wants to think about (laughs) all those layers? Nobody. (laughs) So talk about contradictions with a big C, with a medium C and a teeny C, and then try to go to sleep after that conversation. (laughs) It ain't easy. Can I, can I, it ain't easy. I don't know if you've seen it yet. I just watched the first episode. There's this new four part uh, series on HBO called Exterminate All the Brutes. It's this telling of Western colonialism. Yes. And uh, it's fantastic. Damon, I was going to recommend it to you off air, but here's a a formal on air recommendation. Um, (laughs) And, you know, it's one of those things where me and my partner, Rosie, we knew we were going to watch it. We were like, all right, we're going to watch an episode this weekend. And we just kind of kept putting it off a little. It was like, maybe we should watch something else for a little while. And the whole premise of it, uh, among other things, is basically, I know this is hard, but we have to start with what actually happened, um, which seems very simple. Um, But there wasn't a lot in there that I didn't like intellectually know. But it doesn't mean that I didn't still have challenges, you know, facing it but i just kept thinking about someone who just clicked this on right and didn't have the relationship to help engage with it who this was their first time learning these things or engaging with these ideas and questioning some of those paradoxes and and trying to face some of those contradictions head on and yeah it's definitely something that it, it, it's easier with someone who can help you you know it's, exactly it's, it's an interesting example of like what happens if you don't if you just ask people to do that 
on their own. It can be done, but it, it, there's so much discomfort with that facing of contradiction uh, from a position yes. of uh, yes. like closer relationship to power, because power doesn't make space for contradiction. Exactly. And also, I would add to your analysis here, there is no necessary reward for facing your contradictions. So people ain't that motivated <laughs> to do it. Right. That's a great point. They're not that they're not that motivated. And the consequences for having that experience is one where the genie can't go back in the bottle. And that's pretty damn uncomfortable for people. You know what I mean? When I used to do the racism 101 workshops all over the place years ago, I mean, I've done it for 30 years. And I would say to people, how old were you when you learned some misinformation about somebody that was different? And somewhere in there, they'd average out to about the age of seven. And then I'd say, and who did you learn this information from? And it was always mom, dad, grandma, Uncle Willie, their favorite Uncle Willie or Aunt Jane. And then I asked them, what were you told to do about that information? And that was to believe it blindly. And then I'd say, and what happened when you realized that the people you love and trusted the most gave you the wrong information about somebody of difference? And they would say they felt hurt and there was no place to express that hurt. So. It goes directly to your point. If you're going to sit down and watch a program and you don't have a little bit of hand holding, a little bit of some reference point to go and further read about, you don't really have any real experiences with anybody that are different other than what you see on TV. It's more likely that you're going to become more entrenched in what you know. You ain't going to levitate. In fact, you're going to get a shovel out and dig a little deeper so you can feel more grounded in what you already know. Let me go to my next word, because I think it's crucial to this idea of what does it mean to live a principled life? You know, and again, often religious structures, academic structures, economic structures, political structures have tried to appropriate this word, suggesting that there's just one principle or certain principles and nothing else changes. So I want to offer something a little bit different. I think of a principle as kind of a a truth that serves as a foundation for one making a decision about one's personal choices and one's social choices. There's a universal about it that can be tested across cultures, across ages, across decades or, or centuries. You know, love changes things fact, (laughs) you know, and not love changes things too, right? Fact, right? So I have learned that in my mentoring with others is to try to help young people look at the fact that they have principles that they're not conscious of, that they take a moment and figure out where those principles got lodged into them step back and analyze them and to begin to sort out their own principles, way of living. And believe me, when I found that I start living political principles, say, from those early political mentors I had, 
again, I could not go back to what I had learned in my family. I could not go back to what I had learned in my community. Do you know how ridiculous it was for me to have learned, say, for an example, political principles about organizing people in urban spaces and then finding my ass in a small town in Iowa (laughs) trying to apply that, looking for workers to organize when we're primarily, you know, farmers. Like I had to turn that whole system around and figure out what were the principles that these people were living in and where that I have a similarity. So I think that is a search. Principles are something that you acquire, that you stack up, that you draw upon. And here's what I have found when I am in touch with someone else's principles, that if someone shares that principle with me and we can speak honestly about it, then we can hold each other accountable to something, to each other around those principles. And that is a very comforting notion. And the final term that I want to talk about is complexities, because everything is complex. I mean, not only do the capitalists maximize their profit and make life more controlling and our agency less capable, but we also, in our thinking, we tend to do the same thing. And we forget that complexities require that we fix things in parts, in small parts. This notion that we can have some grand one-time goddamn solution, forget that because it erases all the small work that people do where they do the work into the larger picture. So complexities requires that we connect our principle to whatever our goal is, and then we relate that goal to what's going to be our small part. And I'm going to tell you, as a young person, I have made big ass mistakes uh, (laughs) approaching something that's complex as if it's simplified and there's only one answer. Because you all asked me to be very clear about the transformational capacity of mentorship. Well, the biggest thing about that is that you got to have possibilities because if you rob people of possibilities, then you have robbed them of seeing how complexity works and how their little part can move the whole wheel if if a person knows how significant their part is. Can we talk about any of those big mistakes you want to share? Oh my gosh, yes. Okay, I'll tell you a personal one and then I'll tell you a practical one. You know, when I was in college, at Wayne State University, predominantly Afro-American city in Detroit. And I loved folk dancing. Every Friday, then white folks would get together and do that folk dancing. And I was a black nationalism with a big Afro following Angela Davis and the militants of the time. And I used to sneak over there and do (laughs) folk dancing, but I didn't want my black folks to know I loved the folk dancing because they would then call me out and ask me what I was doing. And then I got me, you know, a white boyfriend. Oh, God, I didn't want anybody to know that. So I had to get one of those. And here this sneaking around (laughs) I was doing, you know, was ridiculous because I did not (laughs) understand the complexity of my personal choices and the implication of those at the social level. And so I chose to be dishonest in applying my principles. Instead of having those real discussions with people about my complexities, I hid from them. Now, let me, let me switch this to a political example. I also was involved in nationalist organizations, whether it was the Nation of Islam or whether it was the Republic of New Africa 
or whether it was the League of Revolutionary Black Workers or it was North. In some of those black and brown spaces of collectivity, I saw abusive behavior toward women, toward authority in a negative way, toward aged people, people who we could learn from, and an arrogance and a false listening. And I knew it was wrong because, believe me, a lot of the things I learned in my family for them to survive wasn't wrong. And I got into these revolutionary spaces that I thought were so powerful that I was willing to throw my family under the bus for and saw some pretty bad behavior. And when I called people out as individuals, you know, here's a person who's dead now. um, But I mean, well, I won't mention that name. Maybe I won't. But but there's a person that is dead and and they were head of a black nationalist organization. They were the King Kong leader and they were racist and they were sexist and they were violent toward women, put women in a subservient situation. And I kept my mouth silenced and I justified that behavior in the same way they did. And in that respect, I compromised my own humanity and I didn't face my own contradictions because contradictions and complexities are positive as well as negative. And I kept reduced, multiplying my own negative contradictions and complexities because I wouldn't face what was in front of me. And so when I think of that, you know, I left the organization instead of staying in it and fighting the principles that I needed to fight. And I did a lot of that running away because I was by myself. And I think that today the difference is is that you young people and the technologies that you have hold people accountable beyond the personal experience that you also see now that that personal experience reflects ideological differences and you can now fight those things. I wish I had done that, you know, at 17, 18, 19, instead of running away. I can do that now, but I, I wasn't able to do that when I was in my teens You know, I was doing too much, you know, movement, worshiping, thinking that if I belong to an organization, that uh, I belong to something higher. And that that isn't always true. Higherness comes from how you feel inside and how, if anything takes away your ability to practice radical self-care, then that's not the right thing for you. I don't give a shit how holy you think it, it is and how much you're getting from it. It's not the right thing if it is costing you to harm yourself intellectually or spiritually, or for that matter, cutting yourself off from the people who you are rooted from. Yeah, if it's dehumanizing you, it's not going to serve humanity. It absolutely isn't. So I think that those four ideas are very important to seeing how your mentor lives that, them demonstrating to you the possibilities that come from that. And when you can get that, then I want to come up, I want to now offer my word for mentoring. Maybe it's not a replacement, but maybe it's more of a kind of a checklist of it. You know, what is it that transforms somebody? I think to be transformed, you have to be triggered in some kind of way. Mm. And I think critical reflection is what mentoring should do, that it should cause you to reflect deeply, internally, not just the things outside, but that it should do those things inside. And certainly 
educational institutions say they want to teach young people to think critically, but I think that's only one side of the coin. The other side is to have critical reflection of yourself. Grace and Jimmy used to say, we change ourselves to change the world. And and I used to think, bullshit, but you know what? <laughs> but you want to know something? What always stopped me often before it was the world stopping me something, it was my own thinking that stopped me. So the interrelatedness of that is very crucial. To be able to think of possibilities, you got to be collectively reflective of your own self. And that that's the empowerment. And by the way, that's a lot harder, cannot be done by yourself. You have to get in process with others to do that. And most people's egos are too damn big to do that. But you got to be in process to be able to critically reflect on your own self. You have to do the historical work of how is my thinking related to the generation I'm in and the set of possibilities of this generation? And how might I think about that in the future? Because if you want to be a change agent, you got to be a change agent for your entire life, you know, because you're always making decisions whether you act or don't act either way. Whew, so much there. So much. Okay. Here, here's one thing, Keisha. Okay. Just, just in hearing your story of, you know, you'll throw out a, a Stokely here, a Walter Rodney there, a, a, an Angela here. Uh, an Audrey Lord there. You really are like a Forrest Gump of radical movements. <laughs> 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 and you have like the sayings and expressions to go with it. It's just so exciting and captivating. Uh, I would love to see some of your experiences like dramatized. Uh, because, because I, I, you know, the access and the connection that you had with movement combined within this 30 years of developing and nurturing and providing space for levitation and critical reflection around complexities and contradictions for young people. You exist within this continuum that's just so, ah, it's just so wow. dynamic for me. And I know it, I know to you, it's just your life, but we're, you know, those lineages and those, those connections, like it gets easier to not mythologize that actually over time as we do more, but the idea of like, oh yeah, that's a person I know, or that's a space I was in, or that's a, something that I turned a critical eye to. It, yeah, it bridges a gap in some ways. Go ahead. Sorry, well, it, it, I, I just want to say that you're right. I have not told my personal stories of some of these people earlier on because I didn't want to use them as privilege points to, to get something. Mm. Um, so I, I consciously um, didn't do that. But at the same time, I got a chance to see a human experience with someone that I do want to talk about. I mean, I am going to write my memoir of those stories. For example, I got drunk as hell with Gloria Anzaldúa. We were both editing our books. We were in San Francisco with our publisher. She was crazy as shit, and I was multiplied by that 10. And we set up and got drunk on the porch and talked a lot. But I also in that space with her, heard some things that those seeds that she planted that I, I wasn't growing at the time, but when it was right for them to grow, she planted them. And I am indebted to her way of bringing poetry to political analysis. That is a gift that she and Latinx women bring to activism that has 
touched my heart. I'm almost in tears about it now. I'm glad I lived long enough to see that. When we were getting drunk that day or those days, sitting in our pajamas, really being inappropriate, to be honest. But, <laughs> um, you know, it's here now. I Those stories now. The person I didn't mention who was quite violent and quite crazy was Huey P. Newton. You know, his behavior inside of the Black Panther Party in its leadership and many, I'm not the only one who has, who has a documented this. I'm just talking about my, uh, my witnessing of this behavior, you know, this abuse of power inside of black political organizations. It really broke my heart, but what breaks your heart also strengthens your heart. When you realize it's not your behavior and you're not going to do that, you're going to do something different. And so those behaviors and those intimate experiences, you know, I remember Audre Lorde implying that, you know, the real feminists were feminists who were one day going to, we were going to all be lesbians. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to be a lesbian, <laughs> not because I wouldn't have wanted to, or I didn't acquire that, but that isn't who I was. That when was it going to be okay for me to be a heterosexual and to be as powerful as every lesbian voice? Well, I was learning that and interacting at a time in which that was her best idea. I've lived longer than her. I now know that anybody can have lesbian power, you know, by mimicking the strength that they have given us in what they've contributed to humanity. It isn't about your gender or your sexuality. You know, it is about how you embrace ideas and the intentionality of those ideas. So in a way, I kind of was doubting Audre Lord at the time that I knew her, but I have also so many nuggets. She taught me that my silence would not ever protect me, but I also learned that there will be times in which my silence would protect me. I've lived long enough for that. So you're right. I, I do have those intimate stories. I don't want to use them to get a heads up on anyone. I don't want to privilege myself in the same way that I don't think you all will one day exploit the shit out of me because I was your teacher, you know, but you will exploit what you learn from me to do whatever the hell you have to do in order to change the world. I don't know. Wait till you see the merchandise from this episode. <laughs> <laughs> the mugs, the keychains. Oh, God, people. Air yeah, you, get your, you get your six your six percent commission is what we're going You know what? If it, if it works, if it works and it's contained, maybe no, no, no. maybe you're maybe you're right. But all I all I know is you know my point. You know the point that there is the capitalist motive, which is generally inhumane, and there is the the positive mo motive. I mean, Black Lives Matter. I have how many T-shirts and how many banners? I mean, I've got that stuff for the cause. The larger point is, is that we do something for purpose. And since humanity is that purpose, what is it requiring us to be more humane? Then I think mentorship goes directly to that. It is an a sacred relationship. It is a relationship of responsibility. The sponsor needs it as much as the sponsee. And I guess that's my point. I am being mentored right now by you young people who I'm standing in the wing of you now, and I am learning and I am changing my assumptions and premises because you all say something in your historical moment that blows my freaking mind. And I have to go back and think about 
Why don't I think of that? Does your idea scare me? What is it challenging me as a 68-year-old grandmother to do? And then I get to engage you. And I'm grateful that you all have the communication skills you have in a moment of total confusion around technology to even be able to be articulate. So the process is organic, it's flowing, and it has to be based on respect. And I, and I feel respected by young people. And so I thus offer them back that respect that they give me. Levitate, 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 levitate. Uh. Whew, Keisho Scott, folks. Yep, yep, uh. yep. That's where we're going to leave it for this part one. And we'll bring you all the second part of the conversation next week. Whew, yeah, just, just want to take a little break. We want to make sure we go through this conversation intentionally. So we want you to absorb all that we just went through. And man, it feels really good to just be talking to Keisho and, and to be, be hearing her voice. It's so grounding. We talk a lot on this show about lineage. And I think more than anybody, this is like the person <laughs> that we reroute our, a lot of our lineage in. And so it, it feels comfortable to be knowing where we come from. Yeah. I mean, so many times being in Keisho's office, I kind of wished I had the opportunity to take a pause and soak it all in. So I'm <laughs> glad we kind of built that in for y'all here. And on part two, we dive deep into some personal experiences that we had with her that, you know, a lot of the theory and the ideas that she just laid out, you get to kind of see it in action. Um, and yeah, it's a it's a rare Damon and Daniel tearjerker as well. <laughs> it's becoming less rare. But <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Which is like, maybe, maybe. Uh, it might be good for me. I don't know if it's good for y'all listening. <laughs> We made a lot of episodes for y'all. This one's for us. <laughs> but 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 take a break. Breathe some of that in. We'll be right back. Um, and really think about some of the ways in which K-Show deconstructed this notion of mentorship that we're talking about and figure out how you're going to levitate yourself and your people. And we'll be right back with part two. Much love to the people. Peace. Levitate, 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 levitate.